Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series of messages on the book of Acts, today looking at Acts chapters 24, 25, and 26, Paul's trials before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And now, here's David. Well, thank you. Oops, we're a little loud here. Hot, hot mic today. <laughs> All right, is that a little better for your ears? <clears throat> Speaker was bold today. <laughs> wow, as I was thinking about this talk today, this this uh, title came to mind, To Boldly Speak. And, of course, you Star Trek fans out there know where that came from in my uh, thinking, but I had to add on to that other part then, when no one has spoken before. And uh, uh, there's a few of us, eh? but not too many anymore. <laughs> Sorry. So, anyway, we'll carry on. Many of you have heard of uh, Richard Wormbrandt. He was a bold spokesperson for Jesus. He was imprisoned and tortured by the communist state of Romania in 1948 for proclaiming the kingdom of God. If the communists hoped to silence Wormbrandt by this harsh treatment, they were disappointed by his response. Instead of falling silent, he continued to take every opportunity to speak about Jesus. Here's one of the well-known stories that he tells. It was strictly forbidden, this is Richard speaking, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. And you know, the fact that Wormbrand can use humor in describing such an evil situation is, is really astounding. You know, it, it just doesn't seem humanly possible. How was he over, able to overcome this uh, basic instinct that we have to, for self-preservation. How was, how was he able to do that? How was he able to speak for Jesus in that situation? This morning we're going to consider Paul's response to his trials in the Roman judicial system. How did he contend with the threats and injustice of his situation? How was he able to face his fears and testify for Jesus in the presence of powerful world leaders? But before we turn to Acts 24 to 26, I would like you to uh, just focus a few moments on two other portions of Scripture. The first uh, is Psalm 119, 41 to 48. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. 
The psalmist here has put his finger right on the heart of what makes it possible for him to exceed these bounds of human instincts. It is God's love for him and his love for God. Love provides the energy and the motivation needed to proclaim God's message before kings without shame. Let's look at the words of Jesus that he spoke in Matthew 10, uh, 16 to 20. And this, Jesus spoke to these words to his disciples before sending them out on a mission to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, I think these words have significance for followers of Jesus in any time period. They were certainly appropriate for the Apostle Paul, as he was called to testify before governors and the king. In Acts 24 to 26, we have the incredible opportunity to hear about four of Paul's interactions with five named people of great power and influence. Now, we don't have time to read the three chapters today, but I do hope that you will take a few moments later today to read these compelling stories if you haven't already been familiar with them. I will be giving sort of the condensed Reader's Digest version in this talk today. So three of these intera interactions were in formal courtroom settings, and one was more of an informal setting. But Luke gives us a unique peek into the Roman justice system. One of his purposes in recording these accounts for Theophilus and also for the rest of us <clears throat> is to affirm that the Christian message was never found to be contrary to Roman law. Paul's innocence is declared by all of these powerful Roman figures. Let's look at these four exchanges and the characters involved. Take note of Paul's different approaches in the different settings. All of these encounters took place in Caesarea, a city built by Herod the Great and named in, in honor of the emperors of Rome. It was the seat of Roman government in Palestine, even though Jerusalem was the center of Jewish culture and religion. These pictures that we are looking at uh, are the palace at Caesarea, one as it might have looked like in the time that Paul was there, and the other one, what it looked like when we were there in 2014, the ruins of that part of the building right there. And it's interesting that uh, there's a plaque just behind where this picture was taken of, that says this is where Paul was in, uh, heard his hearing in front of Felix and Festus. So it's a kind of a neat place to visit. So Paul's first appearance in the Roman court was before the governor Felix. Governors were appointed to their positions by the emperor and were the emperor's representatives. They were in charge of maintaining Roman control, control of the province and ensuring that revenues continued to flow back to Rome. Felix had been a slave in a royal household, and he was given his freedom by the mother of Claudius, 
who was the emperor that appointed him as governor of Palestine in around 52 AD. As governor, he was responsible for keeping the peace. In other words, maintaining Roman law and order and ensuring that taxes were collected. So any hint of unrest or rebellion would reflect poorly on the governor and might result in his recall. Now, contrary to the flattering words of Tertullus that we read in Acts 24, Felix was rather a cruel and corrupt governor. According to Tacitus, a historian, Felix reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. I think it's important to recognize that at this time, Palestine was a powder keg. In only about eight years, the country would explode into the Jewish war that would result in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of both Jews and Romans and would leave Jerusalem a smoldering ruins. Felix was like the guy lighting a cigarette next to a can of open, open can of gasoline. <laughs> His corruption and cruelty were pushing the country closer to revolt. This is the man who was asked to judge a case brought by the Jews against the citizen of Rome. So the hearings begin begins with Tertullus. He was sort of the lawyer, the advocate for the uh, the plaintiffs, the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. He gives a fawning and groveling speech, and it's sort of like this: sums up, Felix, you are the best thing that's ever happened to this country. Just makes you want to gag, eh? Like this, yeah, right? Uh, and, and and you know to have these Jews say that about this guy who was so ter- corrupt and lawless. Now, he, now uh, Tertullus goes on to say, sir, now we're bringing you a troublemaker, a threat to your rule and order. And here are the charges. Now, number one, he's disturbing the peace. In other words, he's an anarchist. He's always trying to stir up riots wherever he goes. Two, he's leading a new cult, which suggests that his loyalty to Caesar is, Caesar is somewhat questionable. And three, he was desecrating the Jewish temple. And you know what that would mean. Any threat to that temple would rile up the Jews. And you don't want that to happen, do you, Felix? Sort of those are the behind the, my comments behind the thinking there. So Paul begins his defense with an accurate but respectful statement. Felix, you've been judge here for quite some time. I guess that's about right. You know, about six years from when you started. So that's a pretty honest statement. As to the charges, one, not guilty. I didn't start any riot in Jerusalem. Two, not guilty. I follow the way, but worship the God of my ancestors, which includes the hope of resurrection, but doesn't advocate for political revolt. And number three, not guilty. I was worshiping in the temple as prescribed by Jewish law. These, accus- these accusers are really accusing me because of my, te- my teachings threaten their position of power and influence. This includes my belief of the resurrection. Well, Felix knew enough about the situation and about this dispute that he could see that he was in a real no-win scenario. He could appease the Jews and illegally condemn a Roman who had broken no Roman law, or he could release the Roman but then the Jewish leaders might write a bad report about him to the emperor. Hmm. So he decided to do what many do in a difficult situation. Make no decision. <laughs> Just delay. 
Maybe it'll all blow over. So suddenly suffering from a headache, Felix adjourned the case using the excuse that he needed to interview the commander who had arrested Paul. So in this hearing, Paul had focused on the legal details, bringing up the topic of resurrection as the real issue behind these accusations. In the presence of a corrupt judge without any other audience, the Spirit led Paul to stick to the legal arguments and the real issue behind them. The next encounter is unique to these four. In a series of meetings, Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, have sort of a personal, intimate audience with Paul. Now, Drusilla was a Jewish princess. And this is a simplified, if you could call it that, family tree of, of Herod's family. So the women are in pink and the men in blue. Um, you'll, you can see Drusilla down here is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. She'd been married once already. She was only about 20 years old when, when she came in contact with Paul here. But she'd been married once, but she divorced that guy and left him to marry Felix. So her father, just for a bit of background, Agrippa I here, he was the guy who uh, had the Apostle James executed and he had imprisoned Peter. And you can see the great uncle Antipas over here. He was the guy who had John the Baptist uh, executed and was present at the trial of Jesus uh, just before Jesus' crucifixion. And of course, great-grandfather Herod the Great up there was the guy who killed the children in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. So, nice family. Um, yeah. So, we'll come back uh, to that chart again in a few minutes. So Luke doesn't give uh, any details uh, of the uh, conversation that, that he had with uh, Paul and uh, or with uh, um, Drusilla and Felix when they met him uh, intimately. But Luke does indicate that Felix was uh, monetarily motivated as he hoped to get a bribe from Paul. So he kept coming back to Paul and having meetings with him, hoping sooner or later Paul would get the idea that, hey, I just want a bribe and then you can be on your way. Um, maybe Drusilla was somewhat curious. Why, why did she come to the meeting? She might have been curious about what the way was all about, or I don't know. That's, I'm going to just suggest she might have been curious. So we have a corrupt one and a curious one. Although Luke doesn't record the words of these conversations, he does reveal the subjects that were covered. Paul discussed, uh, and they discussed, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, Paul's boldness in speaking about these things is remarkable. Now, he was speaking with these guys that could have him either released or executed. You know, it must have been tempting to think about uh, trying to steer the conversation toward more neutral topics. Maybe something like, how do we improve education for the people? Or, you know, what's the economy been like? Or, how's agricultural production been? You know, we'll talk about that. Or, or even this one, how are the senators doing this season? Ah, oh, Anyway, it's a Roman joke, right? But instead, Paul speaks about moral choices made by this couple. Uh, you know, living rightly or living justly and, and controlling your lusts and the consequences of these choices. That's pretty bold. I might have guessed that Felix would become angry, but the scripture said he becomes frightened. 
frightened. That's amazing. Um, I suspect Paul, or I wonder if Paul had been speaking about the resurrection to Felix and the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous and the fact that everyone's going to have to answer for their actions someday before God. And that seemed to make him uh, frightened. Felix's reaction revealed that the Holy Spirit was using Paul's words to convict Felix for his actions, his cruelty, lust, and corruption. He would have to answer to God for his immorality unless he accepted God's mercy, which had been extended through the resurrected Jesus. This activity of the Holy Spirit in Felix is exactly how Jesus described the work of the Spirit in John 16:8, when uh, Jesus says, He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So Felix cut off the conversation at this time when he got frightened, but it's fascinating that he met often with Paul. He was looking for a bride, but I'm sure the similarities with John's experience were not lost on Paul. Remember Herod Antipas, after speaking often with John the Baptist, eventually had him executed partly because John was speaking about Herod's immoral lifestyle. But Paul continued to speak boldly with Felix for two long years. Now, it says the wheels of justice turn slowly, but that's a long time to be in jail without, without a decision, without a final uh, result. It's obvious that Paul had become a political prisoner as Felix, who should have released Paul, kept him in custody as a favor to the Jews even when he was recalled by the Emperor Nero. So after Felix leaves, Festus is appointed by Nero to replace him around maybe 60 AD. Not much is known about this man, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, indicates that he was a competent, no-nonsense administrator. He did much to reverse the lawlessness and criminal activity that had flourished under Felix. Unfortunately, he died probably only about two years after being on the job. It seems Festus was quite a logical thinker. Just give me the facts type of, type of guy. Just days after he arrived at the, his post, the Jews pounced on him. Maybe they thought this inexperienced governor would give in to their schemes to have Paul tried in Jerusalem. But Festus followed the law and had the Jews make their way back to Caesarea again to press their charges against Paul. Luke's report of this hearing is quite condensed, but Paul again stays with the legal language and denies committing any infractions of either Jewish or Roman law. Maybe Festus was hoping for some breakthrough in this two-year-long case when he asked if Paul would be willing to be tried in Jerusalem. Uh, Festus might not have been aware of the original plot to assassinate Paul as he was being transferred to Caesarea. In fact, this plan was still in place and would have been attempted if Paul were to be transferred back to Jerusalem. In any case, Paul pulls out his Roman birth certificate and claims his right to have his case heard by the emperor himself. So Festus sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, Okay. I think Festus was confused by this case. Although Luke did not record it, Paul must have made a reference to the resurrection in this hearing. I see Festus's confusion in this remarkable summary of Paul's case in Acts 25, verse 18. And Festus was speaking here. When his accusers got up to speak, 
they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. Wouldn't it have been something if Festus had decided to use the investigative tools at his disposal to determine the facts surrounding Paul's claims? He could have interviewed the apostles and some of the women who went to the tomb. He could have found them. He could have gotten some of these soldiers who were supposed to be guarding the tomb and checked out their story. They probably still would have been supposed to be guarding the tomb and checked out their story. They probably still would have uh, not tell the truth. But maybe he could have brought in some of the leading priests and elders who were there and determined if they were to be trusted. Did their story hold together? Or was there some, or is there some evidence of collusion and deception going on? You know, it would have been a, quite a, a remarkable investigative process that he could have taken on. But Festus knew that resurrection was impossible, and so he dismissed that opportunity and missed it. Fortunately for Festus, in the middle of his confusion, the ruler of the neighboring province came to welcome the new governor. King Herod Agrippa II, accompanied by his flamboyant sister Bernice, breathed into town. We do know quite a few details about Agrippa II and Bernice. Herod Agrippa was the ruler over Galilee and parts of Syria. And you can see his territory marked out on this map. It's this yellow area just in part of Galilee over here. He also had a little bit of jurisdiction down here and some up there. So that was what he was given to govern. And uh, Festus had this other area, the Judea part of Palestine. And Caesarea, where this is taken, is right over here. So, you know, neighboring, neighboring provinces working together to come to Roman justice. Uh, sounds like a good story, eh? But um, so... So even, uh, even though the Herodian family was nominally Jewish, uh, Herod Agrippa was very loyal to Rome and supported Rome in the Jewish war that would lay waste to the land in six years. The Herods were appointed by Rome to govern various areas of Judea and Palestine, just like the governors like Festus. They were uh, of Jewish heritage and allowed to be called king by Rome, but they were vassal kings. So just uh, remarkable as it is, at Paul's hearings now, we have the final four people remaining of the Herod family. Herod Agrippa II is there. Bernice is there. Felix, who married Drusella, were there earlier. So all four of them got to hear Paul in these times of hearing. I just find that interesting, that that was a, the arrangement that, was, that God made. Bernice was a widow, but Josephus notes that there was widespread rumors that Agrippa and Bernice had an incestuous relationship. And incest was not unknown in the relationships of other Roman leaders. When the Jewish war broke out, General Titus was sent to quell the revolt. He met Bernice and they began a relationship that would last for a number of years. Following the war, these two lived together in Rome during the reign of Titus's father, Vespasian. Unfortunately for Bernice, the Roman populace disapproved of her and Titus broke off the relationship before he became emperor. It's fascinating to think that Bernice, who had the ear of this future emperor, had listened to Paul's testimony on that day in Caesarea. Just incredible. So Festus jumps at this idea of having another Roman ruler help him understand this confusing case. 
Now, Agrippa's familiarity with Jewish religion made him an ideal ally in this. So Herod indicated that he wanted to hear Paul. I wonder why. Was, was he curious too? Did he want to see if Paul lived up to the hype that he had heard? It's interesting that his great uncle Herod Antipas had also wanted to meet Jesus and had that opportunity to help Pilate, another Roman governor, at the trial of Jesus. I wonder if Agrippa was really just somewhat cynical. Maybe he thought Paul was something of a traveling showman, some kind of con artist working the crowds for fame and fortune. So why did Bernice come along to the hearing? So Luke describes this hearing as quite an extravaganza. He notes there was pomp and pageantry. Senior military officers were present, as well as prominent citizens of the city. So it's a big deal. And I wonder if Bernice thought, now this would be a great opportunity to grab some attention here. Being at the side of her brother for an important public occasion may have been just the opportunity she was looking for. I wonder how she dressed that day. Anyway, I'm going to guess that she was somewhat conceited and in her vanity and self-admiration wanted to share the limelight of this event. All speculation, of course. Paul was given permission to speak. He was not facing any accusers at this hearing, and he tailored his remarks to fit this opportunity. He chose to tell these distinguished and renowned celebrities his life story. He recounted how he had gone from preaching to Christ, preach, sorry, from persecuting Christians to becoming one, how he'd moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This great change was the result of an encounter with a man who had been dead, but now was alive. His name, Jesus. Well, at the mention of the resurrection, Felix lost it. Wait, he knew that dead men stayed dead. In his mind, anyone who thought dead men came to life must be suffering from a serious mental delusion. They were disconnected from reality and certifiably insane. But Paul, speaking very rationally, turned to Agrippa and noted that the king must have heard of this event. I think Paul was ready to launch into the scriptures to prove the rationality of his belief, but Herod cut him off. Agrippa was not going to be persuaded by a con man. He had made up his cynical mind. So at that point, everyone got up and left. In the hallway chatter as they were leaving, all agreed that Paul was not guilty of any capital offense and could have been set free. So Paul had to speak in front of five people of great power and influence in the world. They all had some different motivations, I'm sure, to be there, and they were all characters in their own right. Felix was corrupt, Drusilla perhaps curious, Festus was confused, Herod probably cynical, and Bernice possibly conceded. His approach varied with each encounter, but matched the need for each specific occasion and purpose. It must have been very intimidating for Paul to tell his story before such a cast of powerful people. Just think if we were there in front of the rulers of the world, how would you, how would you speak? What would these governors and king, kings and princesses think about this story? Would they care about anything that, I, that Paul had to say? What if they sentenced him to death? How did Paul do it? How did he speak so plainly and boldly to them? And, and Paul, remember, wasn't known for his public speaking. He, he reports himself in 2 Corinthians 10.10 10, um, uh, this way. He said uh, he had a reputation for writing forceful letters, 
But in person, he was weak and his speech is worthless. <laughs> Doesn't sound like the Paul we see in these encounters. Not at all. In, this encounter, in these encounters, he's bold and his speeches are very impressive. Are we seeing the evidence of the Spirit working through Paul as Jesus promised he would when before governors and kings? I think so. Paul doesn't indicate the Holy Spirit gave him the script to read, but what he spoke were the right words for the right time. I think that there are some lessons that we could take from these stories of Paul. So Jesus promised that the Spirit would help, but as his followers, we also have a responsibility. So a blank sheet of paper or a blank sheet is a good place to start. But it doesn't have much to say until a story is written on it. So experience will give the Spirit something to work with. People will be able to say more for Jesus if they know Jesus. Intimate knowledge and experience will sound genuine to those who listen to the story. So how do you get this experience of Jesus? Well, study, meditation, prayer, teaching, community, fellowship. All of these and others are important for experiencing Jesus. Living for Jesus is preparation for speaking about Jesus. The content will be there. The Spirit will give the wisdom and courage to speak in the most effective way. We, would, we should not expect to be given a speech to recite if we have no personal history with Jesus. We would have nothing to say. So, it's not likely that any of you would want me to give you an anesthetic if I just told you that I'd had a I've watched a few operations and I've talked to a few anesthesiologists, okay? And I'm ready to let God work through me now. Uh, you would rightly run in the opposite direction, you know? No, instead we have sort of a rigorous training program that must be completed successfully before they turn us loose on, on you guys, on the general public. But when things aren't going well or when things are really challenging, when you've got a really challenging case, it's comforting to know that Jesus is there helping us to act and think with calmness and clarity. There was a picture in, in one of our, our trips on our mission trips of Jesus sort of standing behind the surgeon, you know, looking over his shoulder as he's working. And it was kind of a reassuring picture. Yes, kind of feel that presence of Jesus there helping us think clearly and calmly. So that's kind of what... Uh, I think the Holy Spirit's role in, in this is. But John's Gospel tells us a few things about how the Holy Spirit will work in the lives of his disciples. In John 14:26, we read, But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. He adds to this in John 16:13, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring, bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. I think these verses are helpful in understanding how the Spirit will give his disciples the right words at the right time. Whether we are talking with our friends or in front of a firing squad, the Spirit will bring to mind the things we know of Jesus and will give us the boldness to glorify him. Paul varied his presentations depending on the occasion, but he boldly focused his testimony on Jesus and how Jesus' resurrection had completely changed the course of his life.
The Spirit gives the needed courage, endurance, and boldness when we face trials. Jesus' people, with the Spirit's strength, can rise above the human instinct of self-preservation. Certainly this was the case for Richard Wormbrandt and many others who have boldly faced danger and suffering to speak for Jesus. Jesus gave his life that those who trust him might have life and hope. As his followers, we are to be prepared to explain that hope. When that occasion arises, the Spirit is available to give us the wisdom to speak appropriately, the ability to recall our experiences with Jesus, and the boldness to declare our trust in the one who died for us, but who now lives for us. Heavenly Father, again, we just marvel at and thank you for your love, for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for Jesus. Pray that you would just keep us all close, Lord. Help us just to follow you. Help us to keep our trust in you regardless of what we go through. May we just do so today and always. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.